Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord and you joining us online. Good morning to you. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, that's where we are this morning. And we will take verses 1 through 13. And would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one any more, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the, what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? And then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you, Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Please be seated. Divine radiance, that's what we are, we are considering this morning. But before we begin to look at the verses, I have a little bit of an introduction, because I think this is a very significant part of Scripture that we benefit from to this day. And faith, uh, Christian faith, of course, includes not turning our backs on the Lord, regardless of what we may be experiencing. Uh, you go through life, you experience various things that can challenge your faith, create doubt, uh, perplexities, pressures, pain, grief. It just it seems to be no shortage of things that are trying to bump us off of our faith. But faith is supposed to have some value in the presence of doubt, in the presence of defeat. It is supposed to mean something at those times. Faith is not just something that works when everything is well, it does work when everything is going smoothly, but that's not the only time it is supposed to work. This transformation of our Lord, this visible transformation in front of these three disciples of his, is flashing out his glory. It was meant to help these men in the days to come. Even though at the very moment they may not have appreciated it, they would never forget it so long as they lived. In those days from his crucifixion until his ascension into heaven, till their own deaths, they would recall this day, even though there's not much written about it. 
We will get to some of the writing about it from Peter. But it was to give them some advantage in ministry. Because serving the Lord involves being attacked by the flesh and by the world and by Satan himself in more intense forms. I can tell you, before I started serving the Lord, as a Christian, things were pretty good. But once you enter into ministry, I don't mean just pastoral ministry, I mean serving as a believer. Uh, Things intensify. And so he gives them this vision. Paul had his Damascus experience. He could always recall that day that Jesus intercepted him on the road to Damascus. How many times these men reflected on the moment, as I said, uh, we're not told. But when James, the brother of John, who is part of the trio that witnessed this divine radiance of Jesus Christ there on the mountain that day, when he was marched off to the slaughter as the first of the apostles, which rocked the church, it was one thing for Stephen to be killed, but it was an entirely different matter for one of the twelve the Apostle James, to be killed, and God did nothing about it except took him home. When it was Peter's turn to die, it was not without a life of serving the Lord recalling such a time as this. And when Peter writes his second letter, he brings it up. He says, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it flash out. He's talking about this moment, and he tells us it's this moment that he has in mind. He says in verse 17 of 2 Peter chapter 1, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came from heaven, From the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Now, Peter leaves out the part that he was rebuked. And he says, and we heard the voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He never forgot. Peter's an old man by this time. And he brings it up. We're not following things uh, that someone just told us. We have a reason for the hope that is in us, as Peter does write also. Then when John the Apostle, when he left this life, he left behind the greatest end times revelation of them all, known to man, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this experience on the mountain on this day was not wasted on these men. So much so that without this experience, I think the Christianity that we have handed down through the ages would have been different than what we have. It would have been less. I do not believe for one moment that the Lord wasted this flash of divinity on these three men. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he would get from it. Whether we know it, recognize it or not, this was no mere flash of spiritual brilliance. Others had experienced that. This was a flash of his divinity. This statement was, I am self-created. I am God. I am God the Son. And there is a God the Father. And this is, comes out in, in the story that we're being told, not only by Mark, or Peter to Mark, more than likely. Matthew tells the story. Luke researches it, and he t- ends up telling the story. It is a fact. 
on top of his sinless life and the miracles and the matchless teachings, this, this moment. How, how often are you mindful of the transfiguration as a Christian? You're mindful of him walking on water, perhaps, of stopping the storms, of raising the dead. But how often do Christians think about this moment on the mountain? Abraham, he conversed with God. Moses parted the sea. Elijah could raise the dead. David slew his giant. Daniel saw way into the future in detail and multiple futures at that. But none of them glowed with the power and the glory and the majesty as Jesus did this day in his divinity. Christ invested in these men and the gospel has survived. And I believe largely because of moves by God through Christ, just like this, for the saints, us, to make a big deal about it. We're supposed to make a big deal about God things. No matter what the world throws at us, no matter what your own flesh, the hideous flesh, no matter what it throws at you, the world being used by Satan, no matter what it throws at us, we are supposed to make a big deal about Jesus Christ. That is not supposed to ever stop wherever we go. That assignment is static. It does not change. And now we look at verse 1. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Really, verse 1 belongs in the previous chapter. It should follow verse uh, 38 in Mark chapter 8, where we read, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so Christ is introducing this radiance that we're not to be ashamed, that we are to preach Christ, and boldly so, as the Spirit opens the opportunities, and that he, there is glory attached to him. And so then verse 1 continues that thought, and he said to them, Surely, I'm telling you, there are some standing here. Now, that's not all of them. They all saw the resurrection, barring Judas, of course. But the surviving believers, they saw the, the resurrection of Christ. He's not limiting it to that glory. Some, there's another glory he's talking about that all of them did not witness. Just these three. And, of course, he's, we know it's Peter, James, and John because verse 2 tells us this. And so he's giving them a heads up before he gets to the mountain. He says, some of you are going to see some of this glory that I'm telling you about. When he spoke those words in verse 38 of chapter 8 about his glory in the Father, they probably didn't get it. They did not appreciate it. So he gives them a head, heads up. I'm going to give you a little bit more to go along with that. And so it is this promise here in verse 1. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom. He's talking about the transfiguration. Each one of the Gospels puts this wording right before the transfiguration experience. And so we do not separate. It is, it is a foretaste of his promised coming at the end of the age. That he is indeed the one with glory. Now, that kingdom of God. 
Now, some can, many good Bible teachers, very good Bible teachers, will try to make a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. But if you look at the Gospels and how it's used, there's really no difference. Uh, the, the two are interchangeable. Uh, the Gospels show, shows, the, the synoptic Gospels especially, uh, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, gives us a synopsis of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And then you have John, an independent Gospel, if you uh, compare to the three. But in parallel passages, Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven while Mark uses the kingdom of God, Luke the kingdom of God, and then Matthew uses them for the same teaching also interchangeably in Matthew 19, for example, uh, used in the same connection. So bottom line is, as a Bible student, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the same. Matthew being a Jew, uh, preferring the kingdom of heaven. Uh, for his audience. Verse 2 now. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Now that's a trek up a mountain. I don't know if any of you have ever walked up a mountain. It's, it's actually kind of a drag after a while. It's like, oh, well, look, there's more mountain to go. <laughs> and then coming down can be, you know, your brakes have to really be good. But... Uh, Matthew and Mark say six days, but Luke says eight days. Well, a different counting, a method of counting, a different standard. Uh, Mark and Matthew, they were Jews. They would use the Jewish standard, sun up to sundown. Uh, Luke, more liberal as a Gentile, of course, including uh, the half days and uh, those events that took place uh, in between the actual movement. And not only that, no discrepancy, just a different standards of counting the time. Matthew and Mark, as I mentioned, being Jews, are, going, are taking us back somewhat to the days of Moses. Exodus chapter 26, 24, chapter 24, verse 16, where Moses is about to make the first of two trips to the mountain that involve fasting. Now the glory of Yahweh rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And so there might be some of that in the Jewish uh, presentation from Matthew and Mark. Because Moses is a big part of what is about to take place. He says here in verse 2, apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Transformed. We, that word transfigured, we get our, our word metamorphosis from that Greek word, and it means to change its appearance. Paul will use the same Greek word in Romans chapter 12, where he says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Go through a metamorphosis. Uh, go through a real change in appearance because of what has taken place on the inside. And so Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think differently. Filter everything through Christ now, not, well, I think. No, well, what does Christ think about it? Before a Christian can say, well, I think it's okay for people to do X, Y, and Z, that Christian is first going to say, well, this is what Christ thinks about people doing X, Y, and Z. This separates us from the world, and this makes the world upset with us. You know, the world wants us to drink from the same punch bowl that it has sneezed over. And what is with people who drink that they, you know, they, they vilify those who won't drink with them? 
Would you like a drink? No, I don't drink. Oh, what, you don't drink? I just said I don't drink. <laughs> if you were sober, maybe you would have understood it. <laughs> so we're harassed for not joining the party. But we can't harass them for not joining our party. How does that work? Well, you're going to change it, but it helps to know about it. It helps to stand up to the world. I, one of my favorite comeback lines is when I was in the world preaching Christ in the workplace, is when someone would come along acting like they knew the Bible and I knew they didn't. And I, would, I did not. I would tell them in front of witnesses, the only thing you know about the Bible is you don't know anything about it. And that would open doors. That would shut them up. And then they could start receiving some real Bible lessons about Jesus Christ instead of what they saw on television or read in the papers. Uh, you know, the, those were the days when many Christians would say something righteous and then apologize to the news for saying it. And it's like, ah, man, that's not Christianity in action. The renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, how do you prove what is the will of God? Under fire. Under pressure. Obedience is proven in the face of temptation, and temptation is real. Uh, you, you cannot tempt me with certain foods. I don't like them. Uh, but uh, the ones that I do like, I am, you can tempt me, with, tempt me with those. I should make a list and publish it in case you guys want to donate. The, uh, <laughs> verse, uh, verse 3. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Yeah, I struggled with that word, launderer. When do you say the word? I mean, it's, the tongue is not ready to make those kind of moves. Anyway, his appearance was pure, unlike anything they ever saw. They never saw something so white, so clean, so bright as this. We sing in the song, Blessed Assurance, Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Well, this is a foretaste of glory divine for these men. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. What a beautiful song. Well, it anticipates the resurrection. When his identity is unveiled, this is who I am. After the resurrection, he had to sort of uh, roll it out slowly to them. They not being the sharpest knives in the drawer, but... We would have been no different. And here he's giving them a glimpse of something they've never seen before. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think they appreciated it right then. They come down the mountain, they're chit-chatting, but I just, you know, I, you don't get the feeling that they really were awestruck or as awestruck as they should have been. Verse 4 and Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. It's sort of like a dream. You know who characters are in a dream without anybody saying it. Well, then this is a vision, and it is a real experience, a real vision. It's really happening, and it's miraculous. And there's Moses and Elijah, and they, can, they never saw these guys before. They didn't have pictures of them. And yet they, they knew who they were because God was operating in the vicinity, you could say. And this, there, these two characters, it's not by mistake that it's these two men. It's not Isaiah and Malachi. It's not Abraham and Enoch. It is Elijah and Moses. And that tells the Bible student, well, it sends an alert out, there's more stuff here. Because these are key characters to the Jewish mindset and to Christianity. 
Elijah represents believers who will be raptured, caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord. Elijah departed from the earth without dying, taken up in a chariot. He paid his dues. He was tired. And God said, go anoint Elisha. And after he anointed Elisha, soon after, God took him out and up to heaven. 1 Thessalonians 4, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have died. Now, he uses falling, fallen asleep as a euphemism, but I'm going to use the word died because that's what he's talking about. And it's, it keeps the, makes, keeps the point in front of us. Concerning those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, he's not saying we don't sorrow. We do sorrow. But we have hope in our sorrow. He continues in Thessalonians. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be. Therefore comfort one another with these words. You can't comfort one another with these words if, no, you're going to go through the great tribulation period and you're going to be, you know, tortured every single day of your life and (laughs) we're going to be delivered from the great tribulation that will come upon the whole earth. And where he says, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Does that remind us of the 23rd Psalm? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever world without end. So Elijah, who was, again, the one that departed from this life without dying and was the emblem of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, to enforce what Moses said. That was the role of the prophet. They were enforcers in that sense. And we know Elijah was a fierce character. If I be a man of God, let fire come down from the sky. And he did it again. (laughs) It wasn't a lucky shot. Moses, on the other hand, represents the saints who have died and are alive with Christ, raised from the dead. See, Jesus Christ is God of the New Testament believers as well as the Old Testament believers. It's not like, oh, well, you know, Moses and Elijah didn't come under the blood of... Oh, yeah, they did, else they'd never get before God the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all die. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. That is without rotting and decay. He continues, and we shall be changed from this corruptible for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. I will receive a body. You will receive a body that is fit for the heavens that can go into the atmosphere without imploding or anything else happening to it, we will be fit for heaven. And so will our minds. You know, again, I joke about, I hope there's not a receiving department in heaven for rookies. 
you know, you kind of, <laughs> you get to heaven, that's for the beginners, you got the classes, what rooms you can go into, what rooms you can't go into. It's not going to be all of that. I'll be so glad. Who wants to, you know, be walking around with a cadet uniform in heaven? <laughs> I want to go in as a journeyman. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> maybe you all don't wrestle with things. Like, who makes the sandals? Uh, they're things to ponder. Moses represents the law, Elijah, the prophets. Malachi. Malachi says to the Jews, remember Moses? Remember Elijah? Because you people have departed from what these two men were all about. Malachi 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb. For all Israel, with the statutes and judgments, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And so there, Malachi couples the two together, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And Jesus said, don't think I came to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Everything they were pointing to, I am making complete in me, my life. And so these men appear to talk with Jesus. And uh, after their lives had ended, their lives are continuing. They're, there they are. They're not dead. Incidentally, the law could not bring Moses into the promised land. The great lawgiver could not enter the promised land. It took Jesus to get him in. There is a whole sermon right there to be written. Moses eventually died, of course, when he ministered to his people. He now stands in the promised land that he was forbidden from entering. And yet he lives in glory. Elijah, having not died, stands in the promised land also. He also, currently, when this event was taking place, lives in glory. So we're in the face of splendid things. Divine Divinity is flashing out before us. God is saying, I control it all. I have some problems with that. I have problems with the sovereignty of God sometimes. Not, not, not too deep, but they're there. Because I don't know why he doesn't exercise that sovereignty sometimes when I think he should exercise it. Now, Lord, would be a good day to flex your muscles. And he doesn't listen to me. And I'm submitted to him. That's the arrangement we have. Okay. Not my will, but your will be done. But this is what we're looking at here. That when we sing these songs to praise to God, they're built on these kind of things from the Scripture. And we mustn't get lost in, uh, in our New Testaments and, and not see how critical a moment this was. Again, so critical. All of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that is, the synoptics, they write about it. Now, Moses, he died, and he's here, up from the grave. What encouragement that would be. How many lessons are in that? Elijah did not die, and he's down from glory. It's all one world with God. One universe, I should say. Only Luke tells us what they were talking about. Because you say to yourself, why? Why are we looking at this, and why are these two men talking to Christ? Luke chapter 9, speaking about them who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus. It's translated his decease, his death. That's what they were speaking to him about. 
of all the things to speak to Jesus about, these two men were speaking to him about his crucifixion. How important is the crucifixion? It's everything. You know, we're stuck without it. This is what made Peter when he said, Lord, it's not so that you're going to go to the cross. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. It's a serious business. I'm going to the cross. And I'm not going as a victim. I'm going as a victor. And so he says he spoke to him of his death, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Because from this point, this is a turning point in the ministry of Christ, this transfiguration. From this point, he is now focused on the cross. He's no longer going up into, you know, Galilee and then down to Judah and then up to, you know, the the Gentile regions and doing miracles and teaching. Now he is heading toward Jerusalem and he knows they're going to kill him there. His death was no accident. It was an achievement. Never was he out of control. Every aspect was an event that he was prepared for because he prepared it. The sovereignty of Christ. Never was he surprised. Never was he put on defense. Not real defense. Never was he at a disadvantage. And that's what the story is telling us. And so if you're Matthew, Mark, uh, Matthew, pardon me, Peter, James, and John, if you're these three men and you're on this mountain, what you're supposed to come away with is that he is God. You think that, well, well they figured that out before. They still, the shadows. They, they had bursts of recognition and then they would, it would sort of evaporate. And then they'd get another one. I mean, when he stilled the water, who can this be? Only God can do this. When he raised the Jairus' daughter, it's like, man, this is, this, this is more than Moses. And so they get this, verse 5. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. No one was talking to you, Peter. (laughs) Peter answered, nobody was talking to you. You were supposed to be an observer. You were not a participant. (laughs) Now, they were terrified in the moment, too. I mean, what would you do if Moses walked down the aisle? First thing you'd do is say, he doesn't look anything like the movie, guys. (laughs) First thing, no, you would not. Jesus said, and he said, To Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Well, no kidding. That's why I brought you up. Anywhere with me is good to be. But they're comfortable in calling him pastor, which is rabbi, teachers. It's the equivalent of the Gentile or the Christian, not Gentile, the Christian pastor, the shepherd of the flock. Anyway, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Well, the blunder of placing anyone on the same level as Jesus. That's what he's doing. He doesn't get what his own... You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But do you know what that means, Peter? Do you know what it means to be the the Son of God? He did not know. He's learning. And those who equated the Lord with, you know, some say you're John, some say you're the prophet. Peter's making the same blunder here. Unintentional blasphemy. Again, because it put others on equal ground as Jesus Christ. John's Gospel, chapter 5. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, 
but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Okay, that's what he was doing. That was exactly what he was doing. So when the Jehovah Witnesses say, well, Jesus never said he was God. Well, you know, the people that were there back then, they, didn't, they don't agree with you. They felt he was making himself equal with God. And in case you missed that, Paul comes out and says that, of course, Philippians 2, 6, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, and that's what we're seeing happening here. Verse 6. And I'm going to tell you, I don't know how it is possible to claim to be a Christian and not see Jesus as God the Son. You, if you see him as equal with somebody else, you missed it. Your, your Christianity is not matching the biblical requirement. Verse 6. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Well, one of the lessons is when you don't know what to say, don't say it. But we all do. We all do. At some point, we all do. I've got to say something. And this is not the first time it happened to Peter. He was zealous. Let us make three monuments. It was supposed to be flattering. God was supposed to be impressed. It's a lot of work. He was willing to serve hard. Go get the materials up on the mountain, scurrying around. Hurry up before they go. But it was wrong. And many times, Christians, they have a passionate idea to serve, but it's wrong. And this passion was unacceptable to God, and God was going to address it. He was not going to look the other way on this one, because it is that important. Verse 7, And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Well, when the cloud came over, took the sun out of the picture for a minute, the, the sun in the sky... Uh, that was a New Testament Shekinah moment that got their attention. But the father does not tolerate the notion of an equivalent to his son. Neither Moses, Elijah, Mary, or anybody else dare be in his class. They are created beings. They are sinners in need of a savior. And if anybody doesn't like it, tough. I disagree with them. I disagree with them to their face. And I don't care whose feelings it hurts. I'm not trying to hurt their feelings. But I'm sorry, Mary is not to be prayed to, to be talked to, to be worshipped. And if you are doing it, you are committing idolatry. You are messing with, uh, you might as well go have a seance, trying to talk to the dead. It is forbidden. And the fact that over a billion people do it means nothing to me. And it should mean nothing to anybody who's interested in the truth. I'm not interested in what billions of people do. They go to McDonald's. The sign says, billions serve. <laughs> I want to know what God says. It's hard enough doing that. Um, I don't know if I'll ever suffer full-out persecution. But I sure hope that if I do, I go out singing the praises of God in the middle of the flames of whatever they throw at us. Well, this voice was heard at his baptism, which the baptism of Christ was the beginning of his public ministry. And there the, the father spoke. It's heard again when Jesus spoke of his death. John chapter 12, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Uh, do we lose sight of our quest to bring glory to God. That's what we wake up in the morning for. Well, coffee's right after that for some of us. 
<laughs> but uh, you can lose sight of it. Pain just takes away. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll shut everything down. And that's why I mentioned these men, they went to their persecutions and their deaths in the light of this experience. It did not fade. Again, decades later, even telling the story to Mark, Peter recalled, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power, the majesty, the coming of the Lord. And he's talking about this moment. Verse 9. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Well, just how the Father wanted it. They saw no one but Jesus. And uh, Matthew adds this. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. I, I wish he would tell me don't be afraid more often. <laughs> uh, maybe he's tired of telling me. <laughs> I told you so many times. You gotta, At what point do you participate in this? None. Uh, uh, he doesn't help my weakness. I noticed that about Jesus Christ. He does not help my weaknesses. He does help my strengths, though. There, uh, there's a great lesson in that, I think, at least for me. Well, uh, Matthew, he adds this. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. So I reread that for us to understand. Fear is not what God is uh, in encouraging in us. God has far-reaching plans for his servants. He had far-reaching plans for Moses and Elijah. How many thousands of years later are they still serving him in the, in, the, in the presence of witnesses, helping him to carry out his mission? And God has far-reaching plans for all believers. And not on the same scale, doesn't have to be, but he's got a plan. So Satan does too, incidentally. Satan's plan is to disrupt God's plan. And that's where the fight is going to be on. And so a display of life after this life in the service of God is taking place here. Verse 9. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Jesus sure puts the kibosh on a lot of things. He shows them quite a few things. You know, don't go tell anybody about this. Because not everybody can handle these things. And mishandling them will cause a problem. We saw it in some, you know, when he could no longer enter into the city because, you know, the guy blabbed it out and the ministry was interfered with. And so he's telling them, I don't want you to talk about this. He knows he's heading towards the cross. They're not so mindful of it. And uh, he knows that uh, the opposition is going to grow, become more bitter, more organized, until finally it achieves its objective, uh, his death. And he doesn't want uh, these things to be thrown off kilter. Verse 10, so they kept his word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Well, a good thing is they, they, they kept his word until after he was risen again. They didn't tell anyone. But still, they don't get the whole dead thing, and uh, you know, that he's going to be killed, but only for three days. Imagine somebody said, look, I'm going to die, but only for three days, and then I'll come back. 
Well, no one would believe it nowadays, and no one believed it then either. But that's precisely what he was telling them. Many of the Jews expected a general end-time resurrection and judgment of the dead. Uh, when Martha, when her brother had uh, Lazarus was dead, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Well, that theology was moving around. And of course, Jesus said, I am the resurrection. They did not expect God to raise a single individual prior to that great and awesome day to come. Not literally in their lifetime. That's what they were missing. They did not think he was going to die and rise again in their lifetime. And so they were perplexed because he keeps bringing this up to them. Periodically, this comes out. And they probably didn't like to hear it. He's talking about the whole death thing again. Verse 11, And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? Well, that's kind of an odd reply to, you would think, to his statement about death. But they just saw Elijah. And I don't know if they're trying to change the subject or they're trying to figure out, well, then how does this fit in with Elijah's coming? If you're going to die and it's just going to bring in the end of the, you know, what's going to happen here? Trying to reconcile these things in their head. Elijah did not die, as I mentioned taken up to heaven alive, and as a result of Malachi's prophecy, many Jews believe, rightfully so, that Elijah would return, the Jews believe he would return literally. Uh, The New Testament teaches it's the spirit of Elijah, more than likely, not reincarnation, but God has got moves he's not fully uh, revealed, but we know this, that this is a twofold fulfillment concerning Elijah coming back and ministering to the people. And I'll get to Malachi in a moment. Verse 12, And he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So he directly answers the disciples' question. Uh, The prophecies of Elijah's uh, coming are fulfilled in John the baptizer. That was one part of the fulfillment. Remember, we've we've covered this quite a few times. In biblical prophecy, quite often, there is the near fulfillment and there is a far far fulfillment. And uh, the near fulfillment of Elijah's return was in the spirit and ministry of John the Baptist, turning the people to the hearts of God. That's what John was doing with his baptizing. His repentance, his message of repentance is not the same message of repentance through Jesus Christ. His water baptism is not identical to the water baptism in Jesus Christ. But it is uh, a forerunner to it, as he was the forerunner. It was part of the process. And uh, again, Elijah's ministry was to return the Jews back to Yahweh as given in the law of Moses. And in Elijah's day, it was Jezebel that really introduced the paganism uh, on, in heightened levels, and Elijah combated these very things. And many individuals benefited from Elijah's ministry, and many refused. And so it says here in verse 12, And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? We'll come back to Elijah. This reference to the Son of Man, Daniel 7, is joined with the Messianic prophecies of the suffering of Messiah in Isaiah 52 and 53. 
and not in other places too, in Psalms 22, for example. Uh, but uh, Jesus had many foes, and he had many friends. And his foes hated him immensely, but his friends loved him dearly. And that is ongoing there, to this day, those who hate him and those who love him. Uh, verse 13, But I say to you that Elijah has come, has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Now, I mentioned I was going to quote Malachi, and I'm going to do that, lest you go home and say I lied. Malachi chapter 4, the closing of our organization of the Old Testament is Malachi, the last uh, book of the Old Testament. And there in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Well, verse 4, we'll start. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. As I read this earlier, uh, I remember now. Uh, which I commanded him in Horeb for all, all Israel with the statutes and judgment. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So there's a coming of Elijah that was fulfilled by John the Baptist. And there's a coming before the great day. When is that one going to be fulfilled? Well, now we're into the book of Revelation. And the two witnesses that will be dispatched from heaven with miraculous powers. Fierce powers. They can call things down, on judgment down on people just like that. Just like Elijah did. And they will, uh, from their ministry will come 144,000 Jews. And from the ministry of the 144,000 Jews will come tribulation converts, Jew and Gentile alike. There's a lot of work to be done after the rapture. There's a lot of work to be done in the midst of the great tribulation period that involves saving souls. And so we Christians are supposed to be soul-centered people. We're not, we're not, when we talk about, you know, we present our bodies a living sacrifice to the Lord. What does that mean? Does it mean, okay, I'm just going to sacrifice pleasures just to please God? Well, how does that please God? Oh, you didn't eat a donut, God's happy? That doesn't make any sense. What makes sense is I'm trying to be a vessel for God so he can use me for his purposes. What is his purpose? Essentially, to get people into heaven because he's willing that none should perish. And his tool to do that is us. Otherwise, get us out the way and send the angels. But no, it's up to us. And so these are dual, achieve, dual achievements. I say to you, verse 13, Elijah has also come and they did to him whatever they wished. That means they killed him as, as it is written of him. Now, it's, we, there's nowhere do we have in the scripture that it's written of uh, Elijah or John the Baptist or any of the forerunners being killed. It's likely a reference to uh, Elijah comes as is written to him and he throws in this word concerning uh, they did to him whatever they wanted to do to him. But Revelation chapter 11 uh, will give you more insight onto these two witnesses that are coming. coming. Uh, chapter 7 will tell you about the 144,000 Jews that will be used to preach the gospel uh, there in that great tribulation period. They will be untouchable, incidentally. Antichrist won't be able to get to them. 
And so Jesus is sort of rationing uh, out these revelations. We get it as fast as we can read it or hear it preached to us. And then we have to study it and have charts and understand. If you want to be a serious Bible student, you've got to have charts and maps because there are too many fragments of information. And when I say fragments, I don't mean they don't make sense. I mean they're separated by books. You mean you may have one piece in Ezekiel and then you have another piece, uh, you know, in Matthew 24. Now, how do you get them to come together? Well, that's what charts will do for you. And that uh, knowledge of the word is supposed to be ammunition to launch you, fuel to be useful to God. The more you know about the Bible, the more you can use it to preach to those who don't. So you can say to someone that doesn't know the Bible, who acts like they know the Bible, you can say the only thing you know about it is you don't know anything about it. That's not original. I stole that from Bob Gibson, the baseball pitcher. We got a minute left, and it's baseball time. (laughs) So... Uh, the, the catcher was coming out to tell Bob Gibson something about his pitching. And Bob Gibson said, go back. The only thing you know about pitching is you don't know anything about pitching. And I have found that to be true in Christianity. And so I stole it. And I'm not giving it back. And they did whatever they wished to him. They killed John. So I close with this. We must utilize invested divine radiance. When something flashes out from God, it is for us to use in some form. Many times it's personal. Many times I need this to keep moving forward personally. But many other times it's for me to share. And uh, the more you use it, the better at it you will get. Let's pray. Our Father... You show us things not to entertain us, but to get things done. You are the God, the only true God, who gets things done. And you use us right now in a very large way. May you find us uh, busy about your business. And all the things we have in our lives, our careers, our families ourselves, whatever else, may they be funneled into that instrument that brings you glory. If you've been watching and listening and you've never opened your heart to Christ, but as you have been listening, God has been ministering to your heart, and you know you need to be right with him. You know that you're not right with him. You've never confessed your sins to him. You have an opportunity now to make things good. In that regard, you have an opportunity to be at peace with God, to be saved from judgment. If you make this prayer in earnest, God will receive you. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your commandments. I've violated your law. And I come to you and you alone to ask for forgiveness. You alone are worthy. You alone can take my sin and its judgment away come to you. And I ask you from this day forward to be not only the one who saves my soul, but the one who governs my life. And I give it to you. In Jesus' name, amen.